I'm Izzy, and my guest today is super, super dope. He's someone that has been in the industry for a minute now and has touched and revitalized brands uh, that for a long time, like we thought, were never coming back. So, Lewis, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Izzy. I appreciate it. I'm super, super excited to have you on, talk about everything that you've touched, uh, get into Fila, get into everything else that you have touched. But outside of that, before we get into everything that you have done, who are you? What do you do? Uh, how you doing? Uh, I'm Louis <laughs> Louis W. Cologne the uh, Third, native Brooklynite, uh, Puerto Rican, um, sneakers, fashion, music, sports, all influenced me and made me who I am today. My entrepreneurial spirit has definitely driven a bunch of my ideas and things that I've brought into fruition. Um, but yeah, a balance between just a '90s kid from Brooklyn and uh, a little bit of salsa flavor in there, a little bit of sneakers, a little bit of everything kind of thrown into the pot. I'm going to get I'm going to start this off with an easy lob question. What was the sneaker that really got you into sneakers? Oh, well, obviously, there's a variety of them, right? Um, yeah. But one that always stood out for me, just, you know, just a special moment with with a shoe was the Air Max BW, mm. the black, white Persian. It was one of those shoes that I was just like, oh, wow, those are fire. Like, need to have them. It was kind of a, the, the need to have was there. Um, when you understand Absolutely. the want versus need and you're pretty young and, you know, you're in your early teens, you're, you know, way early thinking about product and yeah. what it means as a status for yourself. That was kind of like the one of those pivotal moments where, you know, part of your maturation as a young person. You start realizing how music touches you, how fashion, how fashion touches mm -hmm. you, how sneakers touches you, and how it represents you. Um, so I would say that was one of those turning points, and will always remember, remain special to me because that that was part of that maturation of of me as a young as a young guy in uh, in Best Style Brooklyn. You've been in the industry for a minute now. I've talked, I've said that already, and I just want to go over some of those those stops. We're talking about sure. stops like New Balance. We're talking about Philo. We're talking about Extra Butter, Foot Locker, now Atmos. We're talking about your own app in the industry itself. When did you first get involved in the industry? Like when did you like when did that light turn off? Like I need to work in this industry the rest of my life. Um, I think the light bulb first turned on because I was trying to figure out my way, right? I was trying to figure out how do I make passion into profits? How do I make something that mm. is not just a job, but a career? Uh, as I thought about that, I had launched, I, I had like an affinity towards obviously sneaker culture, obviously everything that influences New York City culture and the global culture at large. Uh, I used to collect uh, sneaker magazines from Japan. Um, mm. and that, and as I tell the story, it'll, it'll loop back to where I am today, which feels, which feels, you know, pretty awesome. But, you know, back in the day, I used to go to Japanese bookstores and buy Japanese sneakers, magazines, shoe master, and, you know, dozens of others never could read Japanese, to be honest, I was buying them <laughs> for kind of the collectible value, kind of the pictures and things that I wasn't available to see and you know at that time obviously nike talk had a bunch of stuff that you'd be able to see and there was a community being built there but i liked having that collectible item um something right. that i went out and searched for was able to get uh popeyes and other magazine there's a variety of them that were out there um so i would collect these and then i was like wait a minute why why isn't this available for our market why aren't they speaking to right. 
the folks that we represent. I was seeing our culture and things that we created um, as a community and being, you know, told through other lenses like a Japanese magazine just because they they appreciated it and they actually wanted the storytelling, the visuals to be on print and make these beautiful magazines. So I, I you know, was inspired and never wrote or published a magazine ever before, but I said, let's do this. And, uh, you know, put some money together, uh, came back from school in Boston and came back to New York. And I was like, I'm gonna launch this magazine. What's it gonna be called? And I thought Exclusive was a magazine. Exclusive, the mm-hmm. sneaker culture magazine. Um, and ended up doing 15 issues, um, the marketing, the um, the distribution plan, the publication, everything was done at home, uh, learned everything from scratch. That launched in 2002. Uh, first book was 16 pages. Even sourcing the printing place was all new. But I yeah. enjoyed the challenge. It definitely scratched the itch to be an entrepreneur. It definitely was very thoughtful as far as how do I get into the industry? I didn't know an in. I didn't have anyone that I could say, hey, what you know, what what is this? What is this lane? What are the right. opportunities in this in this industry as a whole? I had no idea, just to be fair. I knew it through a strict a strictly a consumer lens, right? I had no background in production, development, product management, marketing, uh any any of the the many roles and titles that make a brand successful. Had zero experience, just to be frank. My experience came from being a consumer, understanding mm-hmm. consumer trends, and you know, at heart, being a marketer as well. I consider myself a marketer as much as I am, you know, a businessman. But my yeah. goal is how to, you know, and I've learned over the last two decades how do you blend art and science through mm. what I know, which is footwear and fashion. Right? Um, it, it's a little bit of both. So you know, I, I've really been proud of the work that's been done because again came from a place where didn't didn't have any didn't have any form you know right. uh framework of how to execute and learned it all through trial and error um from 2002 to 2005 i had an idea and i you know started pushing the magazine really hitting the ground running uh built a distribution plan where i identified all the sneaker shops across the country and internationally mm-hmm would send them a magazine, try to reach out, get them to carry the magazine, put everything on consignment. Many shops did it, so appreciate all those day one shops that represented, um, but learn distribution from that. Also learn how to be accountable for the next issue and be accountable right. to any advertisers we may we may be able to get on. Have some awesome you know advertisers that came on early from young streetwear brands to retail shops that wanted to get their brand in front of our consumer and our reader um that you know that actually played had many profits going forward but one way it was helpful is that i built relationships with with folks on the nike side and and nike women specific and i had an idea for a store called laces laces Mm -hmm. was the only women's sneaker boutique uh it was on martin houston off of prince so that was about two blocks parallel to that old supreme store and there was a clientele, there was classic kicks, it was a little hub. North was a couple blocks away from where like currently Kith is. Um, yeah. There was a hub and a lot of the consumers all went there. So opening a women's store that was not competition to the current, you know, 
the current players right. that were there, but something that was a niche and something we were able to carve out and speak directly to. What's really awesome is that I think uh, Nike and other brands back then understood the importance of of the female and and her and having you know a story and product for her. I think uh, then to now there's a huge delta as far as product offerings. Uh, right. I think it's it's vastly improved, but that was you know in the very beginning where that opportunity was identified, and you know it takes time, right? It definitely takes time to move the ship from to really start targeting her. Um, so I had the store from 2005 to about 2008 ish, uh, almost 2009. Um, you know what went through went through learnings of, of being a retailer again yeah. I, same thing I did with the magazine as far as learning it from the ground up uh, being able to take on every role from the buyer to the store manager to the stock person to you know just to clean up you know clean yeah. up open clothes it was my baby and that's what I took care of seven days a week um, was excited because I was able to learn from the magazine how important press was and how mm. important reach was. I was able yep. to take some of those learnings to the store and really get some really awesome press. Also was able to figure out and start learning partnership and really what partnership means and how you can partner with a vendor uh, in very specific ways. One way was uh, with Nike, we did the World Cup. So we did these awesome World Cup bags. We did a feature install. We did the Air Rift celebration. And we did a couple other you know, good marketing activations and partnerships. Right. Um, again, very early to where we see how partnerships have evolved now and really is a baseline for what I do today and what I've been able to do through my career. I've learned a lot from that 2005 to 2009-ish time with my own entrepreneurial endeavors to then take it to the brand side. Let me ask you a question based off of the partnership thing before we get too far, because I'm super interested. I know there's a bunch of people that listen to this show that are super into partnerships. Um, so... For partnerships, you think of it like, all right, it's got to be a 50-50. But when you have a boutique like yours and Nike comes calling, what does that split look like in regards to, I need door pulls or I need people coming in and buying my pro- buying product from the store and overall like, yo, Nike's coming in and branding out the store and everything like that. Like what, what did that look like in an early stage? Because I know there's brands, there's streetwear brands, there's brands in general that are like younger that struggle with like, yo, I need door pulls now. I do not need a collaboration. Mm-hmm. But overall, if you're thinking short-term thinking, you're not thinking about the door pulls that will come with that overall collaboration, if that makes sense. No, for, for, for me at the time, I think partnership and how you activate with stores and partner with them was very new. Um, mm-hmm. This is collaborations aren't anything brand new, but the, the execution of it was different. So I think being able to execute and partner with visuals in store, you know, I think I think the the market at that time was already used to installs at larger spaces and bigger footprint doors. Remember, this was a boutique that was like 500 square feet. So there's right. only but so many limited spaces and opportunity to be able to be impactful for the consumer. So at the end of the day, I think partnership really from then till now, it's all about the consumer, right? So, A, how are we presenting as a retailer to the consumer the best activation, um, the best experience, and the best product? Mm. On the partnership side, on the, on the other partner side, is 
What are you bringing that's a differentiator to the market, right? That, that'll be my ask to them. What are you bringing as a differentiator? How are you exciting the consumer? And what does this go to our longer partnership goals, right? I don't mm-hmm. mind testing something or doing something small as long as it's leading to something that could potentially be bigger. And bigger doesn't mean dollars. Bigger doesn't mean, um, you know, a transaction. Bigger just means are, are we getting to a better place in product? Are we getting mm-hmm. to a better place where the consumer starts to evolve with us? And that could be, you know, again, the riff was a good opportunity to go and tell the backstory of where the Kenya runners inspired this, you know, this free form, you know, really close to the ground, running long distance. And that's where that model came from. Because what was happening was you had fashion iterations of a shoe that actually had some historical and technical POV that just wasn't being told anymore. So this was a good opportunity to cycle back and be able to share that story. Um, mm. I think that is when I say, what is what is the brand doing to, again, give the consumer some experience and bring some enlightenment? That's what we're looking for. So I think that's where partnerships, you know, from my mind and from my store POV was that it was never about bigger scale, you know, units or, you know, more dollars. I, I, the store was so small that I, I wasn't thinking that way. I was just like, right. does this open an opportunity to actually get her into more riffs, right? Mm-hmm. And understand it more and have a better connection to the product and the story. Because that connection to product and story becomes experience that becomes, in my opinion, that becomes evangelist for your stores, right? And it becomes Absolutely. evangelist for your brand. So that's where my mind has always been. It's definitely been refined and through some through some testing throughout, you know, the two decades of me being in the industry um, through different seats and different lenses. But, yeah, I think that's where partnership really at its, at its truly, you know, at its core, it has to be mutually beneficial and obviously have to be directed for the consumer. Right. Absolutely. Um, so that's what that's where my head is at. That makes sense. Damn. So going into moving on to your journey, one of the big questions I actually had for you was after you uh, got done with the magazine and after you got done with the sneaker boutique, you have such an entrepreneurial mind at this moment. When did you like realize maybe it's time to go in house at a brand like New Balance? <laughs> well, I think I think for me, it was a bit of a different pivot, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the market turn in 2008, 2009. Right. Uh, lost the store, lost the magazine, uh, took some big swings. You know, sometimes you strike and sometimes you hit a home run, sometimes you strike out. Yeah. So at that time, I was just like, wow, you know, I, I, I over leveraged, you know, the store and the magazine and investments and stuff. Uh, and I was super young at the time. So, again, coming from a place where I didn't have like that mentor or that person to be like, this happened to me. Um, that's something that I'm, you know, as I move forward in my career, I'm always down and i'm always interested in how can my story help mentor other people uh why why does my mistakes should be lessons for other folks so you know going back and looking at those mistakes you know i over leverage myself uh and then i you know i just like i need to be somewhere where there's some financial security and i was like wait a minute i've been on the independent side i've learned so much from being an entrepreneur let me see if i could go on to the brand side so literally, and I've told this story before, you know, I just went online and started looking at Indeed and trying to figure out what are these roles and opportunities in footwear? 
Like, yeah. I didn't know what they were, right? Uh, merchandisers, PLMs, developers. Those are just like, those are just words. They didn't mean anything, right? right? Like, I exactly. didn't know in, in the context of that product being the shelf, what were all the steps that each one of those roles were so pivotal to before the consumer even sees it merchandise on, on a shelf at your favorite store, right? Right. Um, I just knew it through a consumer POV. I knew it through the cultural connection, right? Like, what does that sneaker represent to, let's say, a retro to that basketball moment, to that music moment, to that hip hop moment, to that experience? I knew it from that lens. My 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 challenge to myself was how do I bridge that to on the brand side and what role would I fit in? So again, started looking up every. Listen, I'm not a I'm not a designer by trade at all. I even looked right. up what's a colorist. I didn't know what a colorist was, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just did it. I didn't have that knowledge. And I wasn't afraid to say that I didn't know. Uh, what I didn't know, I didn't know. And I was curious. And that's one thing that I've always been is just curious, right? Whether it's entrepreneurial curiosity, professional curiosity, you know, um, I've always tried to approach it with the curious, really a good intent for learning. So I, uh, I went out, started looking for jobs, found a a role at New Balance when they had PF Flyers at the time, became a developer there, uh, did that for uh, like a year, saw a job uh, back in New York because I was in Boston, I wanted to come back home. Yeah. Um, so wanted to come back home after doing school in Boston, having uh, you know two entrepreneurial ventures, stepping away a little bit, a year going away and then kind of coming back, found a, a role at, at Fila, which was a, which was a, um, a developer for lifestyle, which mm. now I just I was a developer. Now I'm getting now I'm learning a little bit more of the structure of the of the brand side and the business. And I was like, okay, lifestyle, feel. Oh, I know feel like, yeah, I know yeah. original tennis. Like like I know that uh, it's really connective tissue to Brooklyn and and that storytelling. And I know who who that like patriarch is who was the was the feel ahead i knew it right like i knew it intimately so that was a calling for me to go down there met the president john epstein went through some uh interviews finally met the president john epstein and he was he was like yeah okay cool so offered me the gig came back down was there for 10 years was able to uh really create this category which is called heritage and now if i go back to my early learnings of being an entrepreneur, uh, John Epstein was super entrepreneurial, right? And I think this is a, I learned this word while working there. It's more of an entrepreneurial, right? Like you're mm. inside of a structure, but you're an on, you're taking on this entrepreneurial venture at the same time, right? But you have the support system of the structure. Absolutely. So on the, on the other side, you know, my 10 years prior, I was doing everything myself without the resources needed for scale, needed for efficiency, needed for the right opportunities to be nimble and take advantage. Uh, I was just, you know, one man show and running a magazine with with my brother and, and, and a bunch of other good friends that would help me out. And But at the end of the day, like, you know, being an entrepreneur versus an entrepreneur are two vastly different things. You could take that spirit and that drive and that work ethic as an entrepreneur and also have the structure uh, for an entrepreneur to be able to be financed and focused and and leverage uh, other folks in the org to be able to achieve you know set goals. That's interesting. There's a, it's interesting because there's a argument 
um, in recent years where it's like, just go out and start your own thing. Go out and start. If you hate your job, go out and start your own thing. And I don't think some of these people realize that, like, first of all, not everyone is supposed to start their own thing. Um, but second of all, like, the intrapreneurial word is something that's interesting because there is, like, I started my agency. It, I fell very, very hard. And while I'm still working in startups, I also have, like, ideas for these different startups and for Tradeblock and for X, Y, and Z companies that I'm consulting for. And it's just, like, almost I get to take those huge shots that I was taking with that agency, but also I get to step back and know that we have structure and we have that financial backing and everything like that. And that's where I would like, that's where I want to play. But other people are like, just start your own thing. Why, why haven't you monetized your podcast? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? So that is super interesting. I love that you've, you've brought that up. I think there's. No, I, I would say, I think entre entrepreneurs, that is a mindset and that's something that's built inside of you. That's something mm -hmm. that I would honestly say, if you're not an entrepreneur, you're just not, right? Like, it's okay. But uh, if you are, the opportunities that come up or the ideas that be able to come to fruition, obviously being financially backed or having structure will help bring it to life. But I also think the entrepreneurial spirit would still make it happen, right? Like, that, is, that is the essence of it, right? But you and, and I both learning that there are ways to make it happen more efficiently. and But mm. I do think that even if I didn't have the structure to do something when I was at Fila, I, I don't doubt that that 10 years that I would have done something else entrepreneurial. I don't right. doubt that at all. What that is, I don't know, because you know, hindsight's 2020, but um, <laughs> I don't know, but, but I'm sure that my drive, my gut, my passion would have definitely kept me in fashion, kept me in footwear, kept me in, in street culture, right? And it would have kept me uh, doing something new and forward. And one thing I've, I've learned as well is really timing, right? Like, and I think that's a part of the entrepreneur versus entrepreneur. Timing yeah. is so key. I, I've, it's taken me a very long time to figure that out about timing. Um, it's not, I've had a lot of good, great, bad ideas and a lot of the good and great that didn't happen or didn't become good or great was a lot of it was timing. It's either mm. early timing or not understanding the market timing, um, opportunity timing, right? There's just so many little, you know, you need that kind of perfect storm of things to happen. Um, so I, I look at I look at things with a with a different view now and I look at entrepreneurial endeavors differently now i'm just like wow mm. that was an amazing idea not by me by anybody else oh that was too early damn yeah you would have just developed it built it out wait we've seen it we, we, we've seen absolutely uber come out a decade after other you know car sharing app. like it, it's really timing right like, yeah. and, and not to you know obviously uber the unicorn piece that hard to compare but i just think there's a lot of you know from delis to coffee shops, like, wow, you had that idea early, just didn't come to fruition because you were just too early. You're going, you go from Fila, spend 10 years at Fila, 
You yep. go into Foot Locker, and today you're sitting at Atmos. Talk about that a little bit, yes. like what you're what you're working on. As much as you can tell us, we don't want you to get in trouble sure. on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but what are you working on? Like what what should we be excited about? Stuff like that. Sure. I mean, right right now I am heading up North America for for Atmos. Uh, Atmos was acquired by Foot Locker uh, November two thousand and one. Um, forgetting my timelines now with COVID dates are all over the place. <laughs> um, no, so November 2001, uh, acquisition for from Foot Locker for Foot Locker globally, um, for Atmos partnering globally. Um, Atmos has 40 plus doors. The Atmos footprint is 49 doors globally, three in North America, the balance in APAC with the majority sitting in Japan itself. Um, but throughout Asia, there's Thailand, Singapore, Jakarta, Korea, uh, and I'm probably missing something else. But um, as you can see, it's a global footprint. Uh, the acquisition was a genius acquisition. I was at Foot Locker. I joined Foot Locker December 1, 2001, so a month after the acquisition. Um, mm. As Foot Locker has gone through some changes and reorgs, uh, the opportunity to join Atmos came along a couple months after I started at, uh, at Foot Locker. So as that opportunity happened for, for the opportunity to, to head up North America, um, Mel Peralta, who was heading up North America, then moved to Japan to head up uh, as VP globally. Um, so now that he's on that side, this seat opened up and uh, spoke to leadership and, you know, was excited for the opportunity to head up, you know, a potential, potential really good sustainable growth um, you know, build opportunities for partnerships with the vendor community, build a stronger connection to the consumer, uh, whether it's consumer con community activations, um, you know, build out more of a retail infrastructure for potential growth, which is on the roadmap. Um, so yeah, really excited. I think the team is super strong, super smart. Uh, they've gone through, you know, changes. Obviously this acquisition is a huge deal. Um, just the back end stuff of of having to transfer over data and mm -hmm. you know IDs. It's a process. Um, so we're still in the process, uh, but we're also in the process of refining the business to have this uh, awesome growth that we're projected for. Um, and we think that you know something like an Atmos that I covered in my magazine back in yeah. two thousand five to see it come, see this full you know. 360 come back and me being me heading up North America, it's pretty awesome. You know, that's why, you know, me telling you the story about my background and being where we're at now, it's, you know, it comes full circle, right? And I'm able to take those lessons from the store that I ran myself, you know, yeah. women's laces, uh, and now being able to launch Atmos Pink, which is the Atmos women's uh, expression that we're opening in Walnut Street in uh, in philadelphia so the second awesome. store is currently being renovated to become at most women's um we'll have a footprint we'll have merchandising we'll have activations a lot of what i already known and have done mm -hmm. now comes back into fruition uh, you know 17 years later right um so really excited to see that because not only you know when i did it in 2005 the market was much smaller super niche now mm -hmm. the opportunity is much bigger, much wider. And honestly, and I'll say this with, with, with all good intent, the product is so much better, 
right? Like right. the product, the storytelling, the partnerships are so much better. So we think there's a huge opportunity for at most women's in and and the growth throughout North America. Um, we think that's a very clear opportunity right now. In in Asia, we have uh, or throughout APAC, we have about ten at most women's footprints, um, awesome. and we're looking obviously to have the first one in Philly next month, and then continue to grow that out. So really excited about that. Um, another thing that I'm doing in this role too is working on vendor relationships and partnerships. Yeah. Um, and what does that look like strategically? Um, working with our creative team um, to execute, but really strategically figuring out what what becomes scalable, what's not scalable, what's a global opportunity, what's North America opportunity, what fits the consumer, as always thinking consumer first. Again, Absolutely. a lot of those early lessons still apply today because yeah. as much as we evolve, it's still consumer first. It's still figuring out the best experience. I think coming from or coming out of COVID, uh, I think it's a clear opportunity right now um, to be able to create experience in IRL and not only create experience in IRL, how are we bridging that to digital experience? Because we know digitally you need that. That is a baseline, right? Whether your community conversation on Twitter, on social, whatever it is, also, what are you doing on web? What, how are you represented there? What are you doing on other platforms to be able to test from the TikTok to a Twitch? Like, what are we doing on those platforms to create that connectivity to the consumer? Also, what are we doing in IRL that connects to digital? That is, mm. that is, that is paramount at this point um, because you can't have one. I think there's always in this business and I think in business in general, there's always overcorrections to trends, right? right? So when everybody went home, everyone overcorrected to digital, made sense at the moment. Now, I think it's a time to get some balance between digital and IRL. Absolutely. So one thing that we're doing and the, the team has been doing and really pushing it, which, you know, shout out to the team. They've been, they established Atmos Collectors Club. So yep. it's, it's, a, it's a top trending topic on Twitter, but we're able to do that in IRL. So part of what the team is building is a calendar throughout the year amongst all three doors. That's New York, Harlem, that is Philly, Walnut Street, and that's Georgetown in D.C. Amongst all three doors, we want to have a good cadence of activations with the Atmos Collectors Club. Again, that's just consumer connection that that literally is non-transactional. Like we're not about just hawking shoes. Uh, It's about bringing the community and the culture together to have conversations in IRL. And, and, I, and I deeply believe that you build that hub and that community and you're part of it, they will evangelize you. And that's Boom. where consumer loyalty starts coming. So if I put my business, again, I said in the beginning, how are we balancing art and science? The art is curation, right? How are mm-hmm. we curating these experiences for the consumer? The science part is like, how does that maintain our consumer growth how does that maintain consumer loyalty how are we able then to have consumer data that we're able to talk to them more whether whether now they're following us on you know instagram on tiktok or wherever that's that's getting new consumers right so we're doing a little bit of that you know and, and not not pivoting to one more than the other having a balance is really my goal as a leader for North America, um, you know, we have great creative, we have 
great marketers. We have great, you know, operators. Now, how are we blending all that together? Uh, you know, the buying team's amazing as well. How are we blending what's commercial opportunity and what's new and niche and fun and discoverable at retail, right? Like the, the, the job that the buying team has been doing has been great. Like the assortment you're going to see from Atmos is going to be best in class because we're purposely thinking consumer first. We're thinking about newness. We're thinking about commercial opportunity. So, you know, we have a blend from, you know, a, a variety of brands. Um, I don't want to say any now, everything right. changes, right? Um, but you'll be able to see and the consumer will stay engaged. And that's the key part of, I think the industry right now is how do you maintain consumer engagement? Um, it's not about, it's not about being on the hottest trend. It's also being a leader for trends, right? So we see some models, we see some brands. We want to be able to incubate that for the consumer. It may be one out of a thousand consumers that passes by that's interested in X model or Y brand, but we want to be able to talk to that. And then in six months from that, out of a thousand, maybe a hundred, right? Right. That's a hundredfold over where it started, but we yep. want to be on that consumer journey. And that's where I think retail, again, digital and IRL is starting to blend. It's the North Star is there with, with always being consumer focused. And now we're just all about executing best in class, right? Like how do we execute at a high level? How do we partner with our vendor community at a really high level? Um, and that's being able to like, turn down some stuff, right? Like not everything's the best opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so we're, we're, it's not a grab all, it's a really specific um, nuance approach. Um, and what I mentioned earlier too, is certain projects will be North America. Certain projects might just be Harlem, right? So if you look at mm -hmm. Big L, Pleasures, Atmos project, there was a full install, creative team, Kelton led that. It was amazing. If you look at the visuals in store, you looked at the 360 marketing on digital that Marissa and the team was leading. You look at the product that was created from Sam and the and the product team. Like if you look at it all together, it was yeah. hyper focused to Harlem because he knew that that community loved it. I, I really challenge anybody to say, when do you see lineups for for clothing drops? Super rare. I know it's happened, right? But really, really rare. We had a lineup for uh, Pleasures, a uh, big L Atmos collab. We had an install in the window that folks and all the managers in the store, folks and the Harlem shop were like, people are taking pictures with this. Like, Damn. it's kind of awesome to have that connectivity. Because Absolutely. not only does it live up here as you pass by, even if you don't take a picture, not even does it live on your mental. Now people are becoming evangelists and putting it on their social. Yep. So now, as we build that connection, and is that the most profitable project? And did you know? Did we blow out in two seconds? No, we did sell them out. It was great. We had a great sell through, uh, which on the science side, is perfect. But the art of it and being able to have some newness that's hyper local like that, mm -hmm. and being able to identify is really a focus for the business. Now you have hyper local. You have North America that sits across all doors. And any project or activation we do sits across all doors or it could be global. And I think that's a really that's mm -hmm. the next big lever. Uh, Japan has been doing awesome and amazing projects. Uh, you just saw a couple ASICs that just dropped. Yep. Uh, you have consistent flow of 
really killer projects across the board from all the vendor community. Um, but that's coming from Japan, and then we're bringing it to life here. There'll be a more bi-directional flow. There'll be obviously projects that we'll be bringing here from the Japan side, but then I think we're going to be able to, from the North America POV, be able to initiate projects that go global as well. So three really distinct lanes, but three really big opportunities that I think we're we're just touching and scraping the surface. That's super, super exciting. Oh, man. I, I think we're all uh, super excited to see everything that you accomplish, you and the team accomplish at Atmos in the next few months. Um, but for the last question I have for you is what makes you strange on purpose? <laughs> um, strange on purpose because I'm a, I'm a Bed-Stuy Brooklyn kid that, uh, that's a dad now. So I'm very strange where I kind of, uh, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a, I'm a son. So I take all of that that makes me very strange, right? Like all of those, <laughs> all of those people and influences in my life uh, make me very strange on purpose and make me very much who I am today and the reason why I am. So very proud of where I'm from, where I came from, who I am and who surrounds me. Uh, and because of them, I will maintain me mm -hmm. being strange on purpose so we could take things to the next level and you know hopefully my strange on purpose um you know is is identified by somebody younger that can see them being potentially somebody that i can help or or mentor or or help open the door for so i'll continue to move and push the needle and be my weird self uh my kind of you know nerdy <laughs> really hyper focused sometimes on on things self um and, and continue to be that to help lead them lead the market and and lead opportunity for for the future 